0: 80-Proof Politics is brought to you by Big Wig Media, part of the Evergreen Podcast family. You can find this and other fascinating podcasts from our nation's capital at bigwigpodcast.com. First one of my family going
1: to college and first one to go into the military, but... Uh, My dad did work for Boeing, and his dad worked for McDonnell Douglas before it was part of Boeing, so, you know, there was always an aviation influence there, and I always liked airplanes from when I was a kid, uh, and wanted to fly, and that's what I did. Went to UVA and ROTC and, and into the Air Force straight to flight school, and moved on from there.
0: Here we are, Memorial Day weekend is upon us once again, and once again, we don't have any plans. I mean, we never really travel on Memorial Day weekend. There's no beach or lake in it for us. The best day is really just firing up the grill and hanging out by the pool. But I do have one annual tradition. Each Memorial Day weekend, I watch Band of Brothers, that great HBO series. For me it's like watching Wonderful Life at Christmas It's just something I have to do Because as the son of a World War II vet Band of Brothers for me Represents exactly why we honor those who serve Sacrifice for our freedom And while my dad never did serve in the European theater He did follow the Marines through the South Pacific As a photo intelligence officer In the U.S. Army Air Corps The precursor to the Air Force So, on this special Memorial Day edition of 80 Proof Politics, it's fitting to be joined by Air Force Colonel John Christensen. John, thank you for joining us here. Thank you. Pleasure. And by here, John and I are meeting at a classic D.C. spot called Off the Record. Now, if you're not familiar with Off the Record... It has been a stanchion of DC bars with its great comfy chairs, its kind of soft, somewhat dark atmosphere, very much like a, an old-fashioned club is how I would describe it, but Forbes Magazine has listed it as one of the world's best hotel bars. Now, they like to say they're the best place to be seen and not heard, so that's kind of ironic we're doing a podcast here. (laughs) But the reason it's one of the best hotel bars is it is in the basement of the classic D.C. establishment, Hay-Adams Hotel. If you're not familiar with Hay-Adams You should make yourself familiar. It's a beautiful, elegant hotel right on the corner of 16th and H, across Lafayette Park from the White House, and it's got a fantastic history. Its origin story is that the renowned developer in the 1920s, John Wardman, purchased the old homes... Yeah, we're right here on this. One of them happened to be owned by John Hay, who was personal secretary to Abraham Lincoln and then went on to be an ambassador, among many other things. The house next door was owned by Henry Adams. He was a renowned Harvard historian and, as you might guess by the name, a descendant of both John Adams and John Quincy Adams. It's a fabulous place that I highly recommend, even if you go upstairs for their breakfast or their brunch. My wife's very partial to their eggs ex- Benedict here, so I have to put in a plug for those as well. The reason that I invited John to join us here today is because, in addition to his career in the Air Force, more on point to the theme of 80 Proof Politics, he's currently serving as military fellow at the Center for Strategic International Studies. So, once again, I'm dipping into the wealth of talent at CSIS. John, let me start there, if I can. Sure. Tell me exactly what a military fellow is and the role that you play at CSIS. Sure.
1: Uh, So, you know, every service does military fellows a little bit differently Um, I I can speak a little more in detail uh, on how the Air Force does it, Uh, but in general, military fellows, the the services send um, in place of either staff college or war college, which are two periods throughout our career where we go to some sort of developmental education, sends them to be a fellow. Uh, either an organization, a think tank, academia, uh, or other organizations around D.C., and in some cases around the country, uh, to integrate with those organizations, broaden their horizon a little bit, as well as give those organizations exposure and access to um, some bit of uh, of military uh, knowledge and really the the rising leaders in the military. Um, As far as on the Air Force side, the, the three types we have, there's National Defense Fellows, which is what the CSIS falls under, so that's what I am. Um, those are uh, the ones that go to think tank or academia. You know, we have some at uh, Harvard, some at Georgetown here in the city, and think tanks all over the city here in D.C., um, and to, to, to work in those think tanks really to um, broaden your mind and think about um, some of those big problems writing down on paper. I, I kind of um, joke with my civilian fellows at CSIS, I've got 22 years of pent up ideas in my head from flying ops in the military and I finally get to write them down now. Uh, so it's been a great year um, and the outcomes for most um, national defense fellows of the Air Force at least looks to put us in is to go to uh, commanders action groups or on general staff somewhere in the Pentagon, either on headquarters Air Force staff or or the joint staff uh, to have that integration back with uh, the think tank and academic ecosphere uh, in D.C. from the the staff. Um, The other two types of fellows, there's legislative fellows, fellows that work in a representative or a senator's office uh, in uh, Congress, and then they usually go to a legislative affairs office uh, somewhere in the Pentagon afterwards to, to keep those connections. And the last type, the Air Force has anyway, is the strategic policy fellows, uh, which work, they work somewhere in the executive branch on their day-to-day basis during their fellowship. Uh, any range of executive branch you can think of, that's where they work. And then they'll go into um, strategic planning positions in the Pentagon afterwards. There's some that work, you know, on White House staff. There's some that work, uh, you know, um, all the other departments, really. There's Homeland Security, there's Treasury. They, they, they're spread across the executive branch. Right.
0: Hey, what's the overall value to the branches of having military fellows take this time out of their career?
1: So Really the value, um, especially for the the War College level, the senior level, uh, senior lieutenant colonels and colonels, um, they're looking at sending people who are going to be leaders in the Air Force and are those rising rising leaders to get them exposure to how the other branches of government and the other organizations within the city work, uh, whether it be uh, think tanks or Uh, In a lot of cases, uh, some of those academic institutions are targeted for the ones that do think tank-like work as well in order to maintain that back and forth uh, between the Pentagon and those ideas that are valid uh, national defense um, concepts that come from outside the the building. And then on the Air Force side specifically, uh, you know, we have our Air War College, which is down in Montgomery, Alabama, which, you know most people ask why Montgomery uh, there was a reason at one time You know, the, the Air Army Air Corps wanted to get away from the D.C. politics to, to develop those big ideas and how they would form an Air Force eventually so that's why we're located which was then the middle of nowhere uh, but now it's a bigger city and the War College is still there uh, and they use us our, all the fellows as uh, essentially a distributed think tank uh, to do some of that deep thinking that they would have done back in the day there um, in what was called the Air Corps Tactical School
0: Oh, sure. I remember that name. Then, on the front end of this process for you, do you apply to be a military fellow, or does someone come tap you on the shoulder?
1: Yep, you do apply for it. So, as I said, those two periods throughout an officer's career that they send you to developmental education is uh, staff college and war college. Uh, this is my war college equivalent, and instead of applying to go to either the Air War College or one of the other services schools or the joint school here in D.C., the National Defense University, you can also apply it to fellowships. Um, I had just moved up the year prior to D.C. with my family to work in the Pentagon for a year, and uh, one of my big conditions is I wanted to stay uh, in D.C. I didn't want to move my family again after only a year, so... Anyway, uh, I applied to a lot of programs in D.C., and uh, my academic background is all in international relations. Uh, so CSIS seemed like a great fit and applied for it, and uh, thankfully got it.
0: I imagine it would be a good fit, I'm, I'm going to talk about your path to glory later in the second half. But let me throw a little background in here right now for our listeners' benefit. Before your career in the military... You got a BA in International Relations and Affairs at UVA. Yep, Wahoo Yeah, great start. Fantastic. But then once in, you didn't stop there. You have no fewer than three master's degrees. One in International Relations and Affairs from the American Military University. One Air and Space Operational Art and Sciences from the Air Command and Staff College. And another in Military Operational Art and Science from the Army School of Advanced Military Studies. So you are truly a military scholar.
1: Yeah, you could see it that way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I can see why CSIS would be an appealing place. for you. Uh, Yes,
1: CSIS is definitely an appealing place for me um, based on some of that academic background. Um, despite some of the fancy sounding things in the resume, I, I do kind of enjoy learning. I'm a bit of a nerd, but some of those are are the service schools that we sent to as staff college, and um, the second year I got to do an extra year um, in that staff college period, going to what we in the Air Force call an advanced studies group, which uh, there's four schools that do it, one from each service, and I got to go to the Army 1 at Fort Leavenworth. It's like a joke, I spent some time at Leavenworth, too. <laughs> <laughs> by, by design. Yeah. But all of them were uh, very rewarding. Uh, Army 1 had some IR in there as well, too, some IR theory, uh,
0: which, was, which was great. Uh, well, you must enjoy writing as well as thinking. Yeah, more than I did when I was a kid, for sure. <laughs> so it's definitely
1: uh, something that's caught on uh, a little bit later in my life with me, and uh, I'm just hoping some of my high schoolers catch on to that, too, eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Had you published anything before you had joined CSIS?
1: So not specifically, no. Uh, I have my master's thesis from one of those schools that's out there through Army Press, I believe, but it's not something I really pursued um, beforehand, just the pace of operations being... You know, military officer and flying, I, I didn't really have a lot of time to, to do that, which is, as I joked, I've had all those pent up ideas. So now I got a chance to actually sit down and write some of them down and, and publish both within CSIS and some, some other um, sites outside of CSIS as well. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, I was looking at some of your recent publications at CSIS. It's fascinating work. I, I want to ask you about a couple of them in particular. You seem to have a real knack or interest in the international strategic defense investment. And with everything happening in Ukraine and the expansion of NATO, I imagine that's a pretty hot topic right now.
1: Oh, it definitely is, I think. With both NATO and their new pledges um, for defense spending across many of those countries, the situation in Ukraine, even within the United States, looking at the rise of technology, I think, with the drones and and some of those issues you mentioned. give us a lot more problems to think about than we would have had to with just propeller-driven aircraft, uh, World War II on space as a war-fighting domain. So you'll see I think, especially over the next couple decades a huge increase in the, the Talk in the discussion on space operations as you have in the, the last you know, 70, 80 years on air. One of the assignments I got to do was an exchange tour with the U.S. Navy flying EA 6Bs and later EA 18Gs, which are radar jamming aircraft. So I had a lot of experience um, coming from that working within the electromagnetic spectrum.
0: That seems to fit with one of the pieces you wrote that uh, I looked at, where, in which you stated that the electromagnetic spectrum is the next high ground explain that for
1: us. And I think the electromagnetic spectrum is an area we often overlook, as I said, in that piece I think you're referencing from War on the Rocks, not because it's not important, uh, but it's just something that we haven't had to use uh, to a great extent for the last 20, 25 years or so. Uh, It's something that's always been there. You know, it's not specifically labeled a domain by the Department of Defense or the U.S. government, uh, like Air, Land, Sea, Space are, or Cyberspace, but it is something that if humans weren't here, it would still exist. Uh, so we need to uh, understand how we can operate in that and how we need to essentially dominate it because uh, all our equipment, all our data links, all our communications, uh, radars, its all uses the electromagnetic spectrum to transit and operate in. And our adversaries know that. They know we fight as a connected force. And they are going to do everything they can to take that spectrum away from us. So we need to be able to protect and exploit it in order to uh, fight our nation's battles.
0: God, yeah, what an important asset. You don't think of it that way, but you're exactly right. <laughs> Goodness. And in a similar vein to that, you've also written a bit about artificial intelligence and in the future of the military. Artificial intelligence has been a part of our lives for some time. It just happens to be hot right now. Yeah, Yeah. it definitely does. (laughs) Uh, How do you see that as an operational or a defensive threat?
1: So, yeah, artificial intelligence was a bit of a new exploration area for me coming to uh, CSIS. And one of my co-writers, Di Cook, uh, she is you know, an artificial intelligence focused fellow there and we just started talking one day and we struck up a relationship and I heard a podcast actually uh, riding to work one day about uh, every new technology they do dumb things with because we over-trust it. And you see all these portrayals of artificial intelligence where, uh, you know, oh, I'll never trust a computer to do that. It's going to be Terminator. Skynet's going to rise, right? You know, all that stuff. Yeah, and that, that's what we think of artificial intelligence generally as humans, that, oh, we're not going to trust that. That's that's dangerous. And yet every time we've given been given new technology, whether it's anti-lock brakes or seatbelts, or new football helmets, I think was referenced in that article too, we we act more dangerously with them because we assume it to be safe. And you can translate into that the things post- you can translate that into the things people post online, personal information, all that. Everybody trusts software more than they probably should. Or every time you log in. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so taking that conversation I had with Dai, uh, as well as our Navy fellow, uh, Stiles Hurt, there, and translate it into, like, hey, the military is getting serious about artificial intelligence, and we're a little bit behind the ball ballgame, uh, to be frank. Uh, and I, I should say, should have said this to the front, um, that uh, these are all my opinions and don't represent the opinions of uh, the or official positions of the United States Air Force Department of Defense. Fair enough. We
0: won't hold them, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, we're, we're a bit behind the ball game, in my opinion, on artificial intelligence, and not through any fault, I think, of the DODs. It's just that's not something we have thought about because we've been focused on you know, Iraq and Afghanistan for several decades. Same thing, we're behind on some other things. Um, Because that's what our nation asked of us at the time, and that's what we pursued. Uh, But we need to catch up quickly. Uh, So the point of the article was, as, as artificial intelligence evolves into the defense space, what we need to do to make sure we don't make some of those mistakes that have happened in the civilian world with it. is why it drives into the side of a fire truck, right? So <laughs> we, we need to make sure we don't go down that path in the Department of Defense. And I think we have some good frameworks already, both with how we conduct flight training, how we conduct aviation safety that we can apply to make sure that that doesn't happen, not just in the aviation space, but across the DoD.
0: It seems like it's going to be an ongoing challenge for decades to come.
1: Any new technology is, and And uh, as I'm sure you well know, working in D.C. for a while, that we we are not the fastest to evolve and acquire new technology in
0: the the U.S.
1: government sometimes.
0: This is very true. Your caveat about expressing your own opinions raises a question as well about your publications. I assume you have to vet everything you write.
1: We do, yeah. Uh, So everything that I write uh, goes through, Since as a fellow, I'm attached to Air University down at Maxwell. Uh, So it goes through their uh, public affairs office there for uh, both security and other vetting. And then if there's something they feel that they can't. Handled. Their level gets sent to the Secretary of Air Force Public Affairs in the, the Pentagon. Only happened to me once though. Usually I can get it through our university pretty quick. So.
0: Oh, that's good. So I imagine that process means that when you write something with a co-author, you have to first share your piece internally.
1: So, yeah, um, if I'm writing something with a co-author that is not military, um, and every service has their own different vetting process, so I can't speak for the other service fellows, uh, but if I'm writing something with a a co-author that's not military, we'll usually write it and go back and forth, and we'll send it to our copy editor um, to make sure our english is correct and you know (laughs) we're following the csis publications guide or whatever publication we're publishing with and it's at that point i'll send it off to the the pa people that know about it because i don't want to send it too soon because things might change in editing and standard stuff like that Uh, but we do share it back and forth internally before i go there i mean we're all all fellows are pretty senior people we know how to not write classified things down on a piece of paper that shouldn't be (laughs) so uh, that's not really too much of a worry
0: good very good. Yeah, you don't want to stifle the creative process, but you are in kind of a netherland in that regard. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it, it is good that they give us a, a huge amount of academic freedom. Like I've never really had pushback on anything I wanted to publish. Uh, obviously, it let me do podcasts and other media interviews too. So it, it, it's both for um, you know my future career in the Air Force, whatever that might be, and my future career after the Air Force, whatever that might be. As I said, I kind of rediscovered this love of, of writing. So. Uh, hopefully maybe I can parlay that into something in a few years we'll see see how things go
0: well I know as an air force colonel you don't have a hundred percent say on your oh, future uh, that's an-
1: anybody in the military is not just based on rank <laughs> we don't have a say we we can we can express preferences and they tell us what they need us to do it's always worked out every assignment I have had has been a, a great experience for both and
0: my family what would your preferred career path be after leaving CSIS? You mentioned wanting to stay in the area.
1: Uh, I already know where I'm going next. I'm going to uh, Eglin Air Force Base to be the vice wing commander of the 350 Spectrum Warfare Wing.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, it's uh, the EW reprogramming wing for the Air Force, and oddly enough, they are getting into the AI space there as far as uh, machine learning and AI-enabled reprogramming. So something that i kind of got into just out of an interest at csis hopefully that'll be help help yeah
0: uh
1: after that uh i'm gonna continue in the air force as long as they you know will let me essentially uh you know at some point everybody is not overtly told it's time to go but you know not everybody's going to be a four-star general right so you know as long as they keep giving me interesting things to do and i'm enjoying it which is happened for 22 years so far, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul, or as long as my wife lets me keep doing it. Well, <laughs> yeah. well you said the
0: powers of be. Yeah, you? the powers of
1: be include, you know, commander of the house.
0: Did you start your career right out of college?
1: I did, yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, I graduated from University of Virginia. Uh, I partially paid for by an RTC scholarship. Uh, so actually, first one of my family to go to college, and first one to go into the military. So it was... Uh, uh, interesting experience um, into the U.S. military I, just said, I always liked airplanes from when I was a kid uh, and wanted to fly and so that's what I did went to UVA and ROTC and into the Air Force straight to flight school and moved on from there
0: God, How many posts have you had? Since then? This, this is years.
1: my 12th post in 22 oh,
0: You have moved around Yeah, yep
1: my wife's been with me through all of it because I met her at UVA, so it's been a, been a great ride.
0: Any overseas?
1: No, I haven't, oddly enough. I've, I've deployed overseas many times, but I've never actually been assigned overseas. Uh, not for lack of trying, but <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, we don't always get a say in where we go. <laughs> uh, what among all those postings
0: was perhaps the most transformative for <laughs> you?
1: Oh, man. Uh, as I said, all of them are very... Rewarding in their own way. I don't think I have actually had a bad one. You know, I, like any organization, there's good squadrons and you know, some maybe maybe not. You know, the best at times. I, although we do have the best air force in the world, I should <laughs> preface it with that. Uh, but you know, certain groups of people gel better than others. Other groups of people, right? And I've sure. been lucky enough that every place I've been, we've been a, a group that has gelled really well together. Uh, so. Uh, you know, m- all the flying squadrons I've been in, uh, you know, my kids were asking me about this the other day. I don't know how to uh, explain it better to somebody that hasn't been in a, a Air Force fighter or bomber squadron than, like, it, it's, it's, like, if you're in a very high-performing athletic team that's doing really well in the locker room, they're all best buds, like, that, that's, that's how a flying squadron is, right? So, it's, it, that's the only analogy I have in my lifetime, you know, of, of what I could compare it to. Uh, so it's, al- it's always a great experience, uh, you know, going out and performing the mission well with your, your best friends, essentially. it's uh, So every one of those flying assignments is great. Uh, for sp- specific transformative ones, uh, I would say the Air Force Weapons School, I got a chance to instruct there, uh, which was awesome. It's uh, Everybody that has gone to the Air Force Weapons School or, t- or taught at the Air Force Weapons School, uh, Kind of hates this analogy, but it's the best one to use for the wider public. is It's the Air Force's top gun.
0: Oh boy, yeah, I can see why yeah, there'd yeah, be yeah. some resistance. I you know, <laughs> like to give the other
1: services credit sometime but uh, even though the Air Force started their weapons school first, <laughs> there
0: you go. There's a plug.
1: Yes. Uh, so, but just uh, and I actually. Funnily enough, I actually went through the Navy Weapons School to go teach at the Air Force Weapons School. That's a whole another story that we can get, yeah, we can get into another time. But uh, teaching there was amazing. It is, you know, you fly in these large formations of aircraft using the most up-to-date tactics. You're developing those tactics yourself uh, with the students. It's like the, the the best aviators that you can find around the Air Force that go to this school. And now it's expanded beyond aviation. Right? We've got. You know, uh, a JTAC school there, uh, there's an Intel school there, which is actually there from the beginning, so it kind of expanded beyond aviators fairly quickly. But all these specialties that go into um, conducting an air operation well, and what makes us the best Air Force in the world is because we have these these weapons school students when they graduate they are weapons instructors and go back to all the squadrons in the air force and teach those squadrons to be the best so being at the sphere of that was an awesome experience um in addition command everybody says command is one of the the best experiences in their life and i agree like my squadron command even though it was in the middle of covid and that came with all its challenges and all the lockdowns Uh, It it was a really uh, transformative experience uh, mentoring the younger officers that are upcoming and shaping their careers and getting them to the places they wanted to be. That's that's personally very rewarding and something I hope to continue to do more of in the future. Uh, And then this year, uh, this year at CSIS, like I said, got all those pent-up ideas and, you know, get to you know follow some of my uh, foreign policy roots uh, to, to write about some of that and, you know we've mentioned a lot of my military focused writing but I've got to do some stuff that's not quite through our publications process yet on, on non-military focused um, okay. you know stability peace building and, and just interagency cooperation as well so focused on some of those ideas um, have been great I did some of that with uh, Errol Yabike, who I believe you had on this podcast a few weeks ago as well so, yeah.
0: well I look forward to seeing those yeah. John, I usually ask my guests if they have some sort of poignant advice for someone starting out in a career like you've had. What would you say to a young individual who may be in high school or maybe wrapping Hi. up college about joining the Air Force?
1: yeah I, I would say it's an amazing career uh, i've had a lot of fun uh, there's nowhere else that i've run across that you're gonna have the type of experiences that i've had it's, it's been awesome and, and once you're in the Force, especially if there's any young officers out there listening i think um there'll be some institutional wisdom that you'll get as far as you got to do certain things at certain times and to stay within your community and I, I think I'm kind of proof that you don't necessarily always have to do that. Obviously, still go to the schools, do the development education you need to do, but uh, you know follow your passions and if something sounds fun, do it because you know when your Air Force career is done, there's experience that we're already going to have left, right? So uh, do, do what sounds rewarding at the time.
0: Fantastic. What any Memorial Day plans for you and your family?
1: So well, I mean, we've got an upcoming move, so) <laughs> there's gonna be a gonna be a little cleaning of the house, uh, purging some stuff we may not need in the next move. Uh, hopefully, get out on the boat a little bit, but we'll see what the weather's like. Um, so
0: the boat, you want me to edit that out for your Air Force friends? Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, no, yeah, they they know I'm going to Florida. and I'm gonna spend a lot of time fishing while I'm there on my, my spare time when I'm not at work. for if My next boss is listening, but. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's fabulous. Well, I hope you enjoy your weekend. Yeah. Um, but I, I
1: do think Memorial time is a great um, time to also reflect on, uh, you know, the people who have given everything for the country. And uh, as you said, you've got relatives that served. I, I did not, um, at least for the U.S. My, my parents, uh, my mom's parents immigrated from England with her. And just luck and timing-wise, I guess, not, I mean, nobody in my dad's family ever served. So, um, But there are lots of people, and not, not just given their – Rears to the, the country, but giving their lives to the country, and I, I think we don't have the country that we have now without that, uh, without the people willing to stand up and do that, so, um, yeah, reflect on that.
0: Um, I certainly agree with that, and it was a pleasure talking with one of those today.